as the heart desires after the water brooks, so long our souls after you, O God. Let us worship the Lord our God. The heavens are telling the glory of God, and the firmament proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night declares knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words. Their voice is not heard, yet their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In the heavens God has sent a tent for the sun which comes out like a bridegroom from his wedding canopy, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Eternal God, whose signature we see if we dare to look in the creation of the universe, help us this hour to look and to listen for your handwriting and your voice in this place among these people. Connect our temporary praise to your timeless rhythms, your ageless melodies, your everlasting joyful noise. 
Guide us now to focus upon you, knowing that in you our distractions become new possibilities for action. Breathe life into our singing, our praying, our speaking, our listening, our touching, that all these activities might become more than they are, and allow us to ever and always praise you, our Creator and Redeemer. Grace and peace to you from the First Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, both those gathered here in the sanctuary and everyone worshiping in other locations. We are glad and grateful to be with one another in worship. And because we greet one another in the name of our Lord, that means our word of welcome is one with no qualifying adjectives attached to it. All are welcome in Christ's house, so all are welcome here. Let me go through a few announcements for you before we move into the body of the service. The first is to say, normally at this point, I would invite you for a time of fellowship, but during the heightened Omicron wave, we are not doing that. We encourage you to uh, go ahead and move outside and have your conversations in the fresh air if you are able to, simply out of an abundance of caution. The numbers are improving, but they're still not particularly good, which is why I won't be greeting you at the door. As much as I love greeting you by name, I'll be exiting through the front of the chancel as I have been until the numbers improve. And when that happens, we'll be able to get business as usual uh, back as soon as possible, we hope. Uh, let me highlight as well that this week we have our final installment of our book study on Eddie Glaude's book, Begin Again. That takes place on Wednesday night at 7.30 by way of Zoom. You'll need to register through the church office for that. You don't need to have necessarily read the book to participate. And I'd like to add, you don't necessarily have to agree with Dr. Glaude to participate. The point is for us to have good conversation around important matters. I'd like to highlight as well that beginning in February, we will have a, a series of interfaith contemplative practices on those Wednesdays led by the Reverend Margaret Somerville. You'll need to sign up to the church office for that as well. As a family of faith, we share one another's joys, but we also share one another's burdens. And so it is my sad duty to inform you of the death of Bill Eberhardt this week. We surround his partner Rick with our prayers and all those who loved Bill. A memorial service, a graveside service, will be held at Arlington Seminary in Drexel Hill, Arlington Cemetery, excuse me, in Drexel Hill on the 27th of this month at 1.30. A full memorial service is expected to follow here at First Church when, again, the numbers have improved a bit. Uh, let us offer a word of prayer, of gratitude for the life of Bill to our God. Let us pray. Eternal God, before we are formed in our mother's womb, we are known to you. And so we commend to you our brother Bill with gratitude for his life, knowing that as your own sheep he has returned to your fold. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Now let us continue our worship with our confession of sin. Let us confess our sin as an offering of our trust in God's love and forgiveness for us first together and then in silence. Holy God, you have revealed yourself to us in the person of Jesus Christ, whom we know from the witness of scripture and community of the faithful through all the ages. You have given us good news and expect us to live in the light of that good news. Yet too often, we hold back from knowing you in the ways you have given yourself to be known. Too often, we resist encountering your word. Forgive us, we pray, 
for failing to bring our whole selves to you, to risk seeing you as you are, because we know in so doing, we will see ourselves as we are. Renew within us the desire to know you, to love you, and to serve you through Christ our Lord. God's word does not come to condemn us, but to make us wise, reviving our souls and rejoicing our hearts. Believe the promise of the gospel. In Jesus Christ, we are forgiven.
Our first scripture reading this morning comes to us from 1 Corinthians in the 12th chapter. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in the one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Indeed, the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot would say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear would say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole body were hearing, where would the sense of smell be? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as God chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many members, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the members of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And those members of the body that we think less honorable, we clothe with greater honor. And our less respectable members are treated with greater respect, whereas our more respectable members do not need this. But God has so arranged the body giving the greater honor to the inferior member, that there may be no dissension within the body, but the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together with it. If one member is honored, all rejoice together with it. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then deeds of power, then gifts of healing, forms of assistance, forms of leadership, various kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But strive for the greater gifts. Our second reading comes to us from the Gospel of Luke in the fourth chapter, starting at the 14th verse. Then Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in the, their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, 
to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. final reading of scripture comes to us from the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, the eighth chapter, reading the first ten verses. Continue to listen for the word of God to us this day. All the people gathered together into the square before the water gate. They told the scribe Ezra to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Accordingly, the priest Ezra brought the law before the assembly both men and women, and all who could hear with understanding. This was on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it, facing the square before the water gate, from early morning until midday, in the presence of all the men and women and those who could understand, and the ears of the people were attentive to the law. The scribe Ezra stood on a wooden platform that had been made for the purpose And beside him stood Matatiah, Shema, Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messiah on his right hand, and Padeah, Mishael, Michalja, Hashum, Hashbadana, Zechariah, and Mishalem on his left hand. And Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen lifting up their hands. Then they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. Also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shabbatai, Padiah, Messiah, Kelita, Azariah, Josabad, Hanan, Peliah, and the Levites helped the people to understand the book, to understand the law, while the people remained in their places. So they read from the book, from the law of God, with interpretation. They gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. And Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe, and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, This day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not weep or mourn. For all the people wept when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, Go your way. Eat the fat and drink sweet wine and send portions of them to those for whom nothing is prepared. For today is holy to our Lord. And do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
Almighty, eternal God, grant now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts may be acceptable, even pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. My drive to work used to pass a placard affixed to a telephone pole that read, Has your religion apologized to women yet? I could never decide whether or not that placard irked me. On the one hand, religions are not individuals with the capacity to apologize in a meaningful way because we are not monolithic. To be sure, the major world religions do have a somewhat spotty track record where the treatment of women is concerned. Each one has at least one branch with much for which to answer. There's no question about it. But at the same time, in the Presbyterian Church, it is not only normal, it is expected that women will serve as pastors, as elders, as deacons. My own spiritual life would be immensely impoverished without the voices of the women who have been my pastors and my colleagues. And yet, I have never forgotten a time when I was pastor of the day for a nonprofit whose board I chaired that had a food pantry in the basement of the local Methodist church. Being pastor of the day was a fairly easy job. When the time for the distribution of food to commence would come upon us, you would offer a prayer and then make yourself available to offer pastoral care to anyone who needed it. So I said my prayer, and then I said to the folks who were waiting to receive food from the pantry, I'm just going to sit at this table over here, and if any of you need to talk, just come on over. I'll be right there, and, and no pressure, but if you want to talk, that's where I'll be. Eventually, a young man came over and asked me to pray for a friend of his who had been struck by a car and was in the hospital. So I said to him, what is your friend's name? I'd like to pray for him by name. And the young man got a very odd look on his face and said, well, I don't actually know his real name. We call him, and it was a very colorful term. So we determined that we would not pray for him by name that particular day. My next conversation took place with a young woman. She came up to me and said, I need to talk to you about the Bible, but I don't know which verses. I want to know where it says that women should submit. Well, that's in the household codes in Ephesians, I replied, grateful that I remembered where it was. But we don't really understand them that way anymore. The world has changed since the first century. We know that women and men are equal. And besides, Genesis says that everyone is created in the image of God. And the part about women keeping silent before men, she quizzed me further. Well, I said, that one's pretty specific. The context indicates that Paul probably encountered some women engaged in gossip and wrote to them out of frustration. So, she countered, if the men had been gossipy, he would have told them to be quiet instead. Quite probably, I said. A little context makes a world of difference. Then she went on. There is this man who is always yelling at me, you need to submit, woman. That's not what the Bible meant at all, even 
if we took it literally, I said. The very same verses conclude with the admonition that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. And I am certain that does not include yelling at them to submit. We spoke for a few more minutes, and then we concluded our conversation. Another man came up. How are you, I asked. He said, I'm fine, but I don't need a minister. I just need a place to sit down. I was left that day with a striking reminder of how the Bible has been used to teach some very wrong lessons, messages that are antithetical to the gospel even, and also of what it has taken to overcome such wrong-headed applications of our sacred text. Students of the Bible know that it has been used to justify slavery, to defend the subjugation of women, marginalization of LGBTQ plus persons, and the list goes on and on. And the reason that it has been so readily used to perpetuate things that should have ended far sooner is, and we may as well be honest about this, it is a peculiar book, separated from us in time by a minimum of 1,900 years. And yet it's not just an old book with no relevancy for our time. It is the source of all of what we know about God. It is the revelation of God's plan for human history. And, and most importantly, it is the love story of God for what God has made and redeemed. So how do we overcome the obstacles to seeing what God would have us see in our sacred texts? Well, the answer comes to us from Nehemiah with interpretation. Sometimes the gap between what the Bible appears to say and what it actually means is so broad as to lend itself to broad misinterpretation. How do we bridge that gap then? Again, Nehemiah gives us the answer. It is with interpretation. And you may be asking yourselves, how can we be sure that we get the right interpretation? Shouldn't the Word of God speak for itself and require no interpreter? To that I would counter from the book of Nehemiah that the Bible contains within itself the expectation that its message should be interpreted, as we heard from Nehemiah and also from the Gospel of Luke, where Jesus opened the pages of Isaiah and interpreted it for the people. I remember well sitting in my intro to preaching class some 25 years ago when Dr. James Kay had us read this portion of Nehemiah where the priests came out and read to the people from the law with interpretation. A living God must have a living word or else we may succumb to textual idolatry which means we must seek to discern God's will for each situation from what God has given us to know God. The priest shared the word of God with the people with interpretation so that the people understood the meaning. 
God's Word is given to us with the expectation that we will use our brains and some energy will go into the understanding of it. Now, I do not mean, by the way, to claim as clergy authority over the Word of God. Megan and I and all of our clergy here are trained, indeed we are well trained, to assist in the understanding of God's Word, but we do not own the interpretation of it. We, all of us, are interpreters of God's Word. There's no way not to be, because when we encounter God's Word, we bring our lives and our experiences and our culture to bear on the reading, and that means that we are engaged in the practice of interpretation. There is no expectation when we encounter God's Word that we somehow are able, even if we could, to shed our identities. Because remember, God delights in our particularity, and God expects that we will bring our particularity to the interpretation of God's Word. But that's not the same as saying that we begin with our own opinions. It is to say that in seeking to understand God's Word, we begin by seeking to understand ourselves so that we understand what questions, what assumptions we bring to the Word of God. Neither is it to say that our gut feelings shouldn't sometimes cause us to question the text as we encounter it, but it does mean that we are not privileged to believe everything we think or feel. Now, here's a silly illustration. I am allergic to mushrooms. I, I don't mean I dislike them. I mean I am allergic to them. I happen to dislike them also. God does reference some dietary restrictions in the Bible using such terms as clean and unclean to demarcate what should and shouldn't be eaten. But the mere fact that I find mushrooms revolting does not mean that they are unclean. And even if I were able to find some scriptural proof text to support my attitude that anything that grows on something that is rotting should be avoided, then, even then, I would need to check myself against the 10th chapter of the book of the Acts of the Apostles, where God declares all foods clean. My error would be corrected by Scripture. That is the way that we can dare to bring our whole selves to the life of faith, trusting that should our own biases get us off track, being immersed in God's Word will correct us. Which moves us to our first corollary of what to do in reading the Bible. We start by seeking to understand ourselves so that we can seek to understand and discern what God would have us learn from the text, even if it means occasionally overturning some previously held beliefs or assumptions. <clears throat> and my farcical illustration also contains our second corollary. Scripture interprets Scripture. What I mean by this is when we encounter a text that stabs us in the gut with doubt or confusion, 
The means that we have before us to interpret it is Scripture itself. So, we lay the dietary restrictions of Leviticus alongside God's declaration of cleanness in Acts. We lay the household codes of Ephesians with their apparent tacit approval of slavery alongside Paul's other writings where he tells the slave's master Philemon to treat his returned slave Onesimus as nothing less than a brother in Christ. We do the same with the apparent expectation of silence and submission of women that we encounter in Paul's writings. We lay them alongside his letters where he extols the ministry of women and tells the newly formed church to listen to them. That is the Reformed principle of interpretation. We privilege the Word of God to speak to the Word of God so that it can speak to the people of God. Now, we certainly listen to the voice of the communion of the saints, but we do not elevate an individual's opinions or insights above what is contained in Scripture itself. We Presbyterians have always valued education and expected it of those whom we call out from the midst of the body of Christ to preach the word. But I want to be very clear on this. We stand in the Reformed tradition unabashedly, declaring that God's word is for all of God's people to read and to understand and to shape our lives. Which is to say that if you are studying the word of God, the Bible, with an eye for how God calls you to live, you are as apt to, br to bring a profound insight into God's will for our lives as articulated in scripture as John Calvin, Dr. King, or Mother Teresa. Anyone who claims to speak God's word, if we have any integrity whatsoever, begins in the same place. We begin by standing under the word of God until we understand it. But be forewarned, what you encounter in the pages of the Bible may leave you with bigger questions than when you started. So there's a great irony that our text this morning about the people and the priests reading Scripture together and interpreting it so that all understood should come from such a problematic book of the Bible. Nehemiah, you see, functioned as the great purifier of the Hebrew people. Indeed, so much so did he seek to cleanse the ethnicity of his people that at the end of the book, after the Israelite men have divorced their foreign wives and sent them and their children away, Nehemiah stands and proudly says, Thus I cleanse them of all things foreign. And that is exactly as xenophobic and as bigoted as it sounds. So it requires understanding. Ezra and Nehemiah stand at the end of a cataclysm in the life of the ancient Israelites. And after their deeply trying time, they sought to understand what had happened to them and why it had happened. They sought to understand why bad things happen to people in life. And they drew the conclusion that it had happened because they had strayed from their identity as God's people. So they sought in the law to find their definition of themselves as God's people, and they did. 
true. They needed to be reminded of who they were, but their reaction then was to define themselves in community by creating very hard and fast boundaries with those on the inside and those decidedly on the outside. There are many reasons why they did so, and it is not mine to judge them. But remember, Scripture interprets Scripture. And so alongside the exclusivity of Ezra and Nehemiah, we read as well the book of Ruth, wherein a foreign woman, Ruth of Moab, becomes a part of the people of God and gives birth to the line that produces King David. We have to look at the whole of Scripture. Otherwise, we risk making some very big mistakes. And so to reassure us, I want to make one final point. The truth is never contained in one sermon. The truth is not contained in one snippet of Scripture. And the truth is not even contained in the whole Bible. Because in Christian faith, the truth is a person. The truth is Jesus Christ. And so whatever we Christians have to say about the Bible or any attitude or any insight that we have, we always look at those insights through the person of Jesus Christ and what he taught us. Which is to say that as we seek to understand our faith, we look at the Bible and our believings, our beliefs through the teachings of Jesus, and we are always looking for the good news of the gospel. And remember, it's not good news unless it's good news for everyone. And if it's not good news, it's not the gospel. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen.
us together proclaim what we believe in the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, God's only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Let us give generously from that which has been given to us, that through our offerings the good news of Jesus Christ may be fulfilled.
Eternal God, you are the maker of us all, and we are your creation, people formed in your image as individuals, as community, formed and fed and furnished with understanding of who you are and of who and whose we are. We worship you today in recognition of your calling, of your communicating, of your caring to invite us to share in your creative and healing work. We are here because we have heard you speak in us and through others. Help us, dear Lord, to ever respond to you and your invitation to your grace. God of all our moments, of our days and our nights, you speak and you act in the world around us, not only to call all people to you, but also to direct and guide us in the way of healing and wholeness. Awaken us, Lord, to hear what you would say to us. Help us to open our ears, our eyes, and our hearts to your presence. Help us to know when it is your voice we are hearing and when it is our prejudices and desires to which we are paying heed. Lord, we pray that your church may rise up with renewed commitment in answer to your call, that your people may be instruments of your grace and love. We pray for those who consider themselves inadequate and dismiss or avoid your calling in their lives. Give them a new vision, a vision in which you are their strength and their hope. We pray for those who, in answering your call, must leave the known for the unknown, the oasis for the desert, the comfortable for the uncertain. Grant them courage and steadfast faith. We pray, too, O Lord, for those in want and need, for those of us and of the larger community who suffer in body, mind, or soul. And we lift up those we know to you silently now. Loving God, bless us all with an abundant faith, a fruitful ministry, a joyful life. Bless us and all those who gather together to continue the work of Jesus who came to heal, save, and deliver us all, and who taught us to pray as one family, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.
every time we sing that hymn, I cannot help, I cannot resist asking, do you know what an Ebenezer is? And I know many of you do. An Ebenezer is a pile of rocks erected in the wilderness so that the people passing by would know where they have been, so that they would know the right way home, the safe way home. And it is my deep and fervent hope that this pile of rocks stands as an Ebenezer to our beloved city, that we may show the way home. And to that end, may the word of God dwell in us richly as we sing our psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up the light of his countenance on you and those you love and give you peace both this day and forevermore. Amen.